everybody. <laughs> I feel like saying, and as I was saying the other night, <laughs> I did say it was going to be part two. <laughs> um, I want to start off with a, a poem. Because I think it sums up often how some of us feel in life. It's a poem some of you might know, actually. And this evening's talk will be peppered with bits of poetry, so please forgive me. It's a poem by Stevie Smith, if you know, an English poet. And she says this. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought, and not waving but drowning. Poor chap, he always loved larking, and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him. His heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, 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 it was always too cold for me. Still the dead man lay moaning. I was much too far out all of my life, and I was not waving, but drowning. Does that ever feel like life? Not waving, but drowning. <laughs> yeah. Often that's the feeling tone, isn't it, of a lot of life. We can have lots of technical terms in Pali and, and Buddhist thought to describe that feeling of just about surviving life, getting through. The Buddha doesn't, um, doesn't pull his punches, actually, when he's uh, describing this. He goes into minute detail in many ways about our whole career of dukkering. Yeah, it is a career, it's a lifelong career yeah, of, of dukkering, of the dukkha that we experience and the dukkha that we actually create and actually the dukkha that often becomes our identity. Yeah. As we get older in life, our dukkha becomes our symptoms and it becomes our identities. You know, just one example of this. And so, he describes it in detail, this whole immersion that we have in, in a sense, going round in circles. Now, some of you might know, again, I'm going to, going to pepper my talk a little bit with some Pali words tonight, but one word which I very briefly mentioned the other night, which was the term sangsara. Yeah. Some of you might know this term. Yeah. It's pronounced sangsara, by the way, not samsara. Yeah, I don't know him, poor old samsara. <laughs> yeah. um, but sangsara is literally derived again from these Pali roots, which you've probably gathered, you know, even when I was describing bhavana this afternoon. It's described, it's, it emerges out of a Pali root, which means to go round in circles. Traditional Buddhism, the whole notion of sangsara is birth, death, rebirth. Yeah. Think of how that describes us psychologically. Christina, in her <laughs> rapid tour of dependent arising. Um, we have this little company in, um, in, in uh, England which performs Shakespeare plays in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Called the Reduced Shakespeare Company. We now have the Reduced Buddhist Company. <laughs> 
And uh, in that rapid tour of dependent arising, what we were getting of a description of circularity, yeah, of our circularity. You know, things are being born, coming out of circumstances, particularly coming out of contact, feeling, craving, attachment, and becoming, and birth, and then decay, and then contact, and then feeling, and so on and so forth. Round and round and round we go. So no wonder it feels like we're not just waving but drowning in this world as we go round and round in it. And why is this happening? Why is this occurring? Why are we doing this? Well, often to assuage the pains of life, isn't it? This is why we do this. This is why we engage in it, to, to kind of mitigate those difficulties that we have in life. Many of you, of course, know the Four Noble Truths, again, it's not a good translation. Four Ennobling Truths is a far better translation of this. The second of these statements that the Buddha makes um, is about craving. It's often translating that there is dukkha, the first truth, and that there is a cause to dukkha. Actually, it should be there is an origin to dukkha, which is craving. The craving is not just an origin, it's an attempt to put a band-aid on the pain of life. This is why we crave. And of course, in its lack of success, in assuaging the pain, it fuels the pain of life. I don't know if you ever feel this. When you're caught on that merry-go-round of wanting, because particularly in the Western world, doesn't it? The, the material world, the, the goodies of our Western world offer so much promise, don't they? They offer so much promise. This is the advertising industry and everything and you know, all of that whole movement to try and persuade you that you need this in your life and this is going to make you feel better. How long does it make you feel better for? usually very short, isn't it? Before you're on to the next craving. Craving is endless. It's like the mouse on the treadmill. Yeah? And again, I would get you to reflect at this stage, does it sometimes feel like that? Like being the mouse on the treadmill? Yeah. Getting nowhere, but actually being involved in a lot of effort. Getting nowhere in terms of Nowhere that actually gives us what often we deeply, deeply crave, and I don't use that word lightly, which is some peace, stillness, contentment, and dare I say it, happiness in our lives. This is, this is what often we're looking for. You know, the Dalai Lama is always saying, you know, what, what are all beings looking for? They're looking for some kind of happiness. It's no great secret, I think, to say that, of course, yes, we look for happiness, but we're not very equip well equipped to do it, to gain it. We look for it in all the wrong places. 
Yeah. We look for it in all the wrong places. The Buddha gives quite a startling simile of this in regard to looking in the wrong place, looking, um, if you like, for our nutrition, our real sustenance in life in the wrong place. He says it's a bit like a dog sitting outside of a butcher's shop. And the butcher throws the dog a bone, which he says is merely smeared with blood. That is all. And the dog keeps chewing it and chewing it and chewing it, trying to gain some sustenance from it. Because in a sense, that's what's happening, isn't it, with our movement into materiality. We're looking for that thing. It's almost like the, the impossible dream, isn't it? It's out there somewhere, if only I could find what it is that I need to stop this endless searching for something. Do you ever feel like you're on an endless quest? Yeah? Yeah, I just want to keep on checking out with you that this kind of resonates with, with your own experience. Does it ever feel like you're on that endless quest of trying to find something that will stop you from having to keep on moving? Yeah. Have on keep on struggling to find something in your life that will provide that sustenance. This is what the Buddha describes as sangsara. That endless movement, looking outwards for something, even looking to another, even looking to another to provide you with happiness. I almost call that the death knell of relationship. Yeah. Have you thought, ever thought about that one? You know, kind of, here's the demand. I'm going to put it very graphically. Make me happy. <laughs> it doesn't happen, does it? Nobody else can make you happy. Like, no thing can make you happy. So where do we look? And this has really obviously been the theme of much of what's been spoken about this week. Uh, where do we look? We have to look inwards for those conditions, for those qualities that will provide us with the inner peace and the happiness. But even that seems kind of fraught, doesn't it? Because we look inwards and what we find is turmoil. <laughs> yeah. It's like, where do we turn? I turn outwards um, and I keep on doing the same thing. And you notice how we keep on doing the same thing, almost in sheer disbelief that it's not giving us what we want. Yeah, I'll just try it one more time. You know, whatever it is. Yeah. This is compulsive, obsessive behavior. And this is what the Buddha is doing. This is that circularity of being caught up on that treadmill of doing this stuff again and again and again. Yet, as we know, sometimes when we look inwards, we don't find rest and peace there. Yet, if we're talking about the wellsprings of peace, this is from whence it arises inwardly. This is what the Buddha is really, really talking about, the inner wellsprings that we can discover when we enter into, and dare I say it, the journey of mindfulness. I don't want to make it sound simplistic because it isn't. It involves radical changes in perception. It requires radical changes and energy to achieve those transformations. Yeah. The Buddha never said this is a quick fix. I don't think we ever say that, do we, to clients in terms of you know, eight-week courses even. 
You know, this is not a quick fix by any means. Coming back to the problem, because I want to get into something which I think is really, really important this evening, which is, in a sense, we've spoken a lot, and I've spoken, previous, particularly previous, in the previous talk, I spoke quite a bit about coming to the moment. Yeah? This is what we speak about, isn't it? This is part of discovering this inner resource of being able to bring ourselves to this moment. Yet, sometimes there doesn't seem to be any compelling reason why we should do that. Yeah? I don't know if you ever think about it. Sometimes there's no great compelling reason because what is it that we discover in that moment that's often not made clear to us? Yeah? We often... As that quote from Pascal, I hope, made clear the other night, we often do things in the hope of living, in the hope of discovering happiness. Yet, even he is saying that that real happiness can be discovered right here, right now, in this moment. Can't be planned for, can't be sought for in a future, and certainly not in a past. So that's what I want to slightly unpack this evening. And it comes with a great, huge area of appreciation. In many ways, in terms of Buddhist teaching, this maps on what I want to say this evening a great deal, not entirely, but a great deal onto what we would call mudita. Mudita is appreciative joy. Appreciative joy. Sometimes you'll find it translated as empathetic joy. It's not really empathetic joy, it's appreciative. It's a deep, gentle, appreciative joy. The actual word, again, has a sense of gentleness that runs through it. So it's not a kind of elation. It's a gentle joyfulness that ripples through your life because you're really living. Not hoping to live, but really living. Sometimes it takes tragedy and illness for us to come to that place where we begin to explore that. When all of the usual props of life that we use to sustain and keep our head above the water so we continue to wave and not simply drown, in, you know, in, the, in the difficulty of life, sometimes we discover that in those places of, of, of great tragedy, actually. And I want to read you just two very small quotes. And this is, I've read this on a number of occasions in, in retreats, and I think it's, it's quite important because this comes from real life experience. This is written by somebody who was quite high, high up in Swedish television. In, she was a Swedish television presenter and suddenly was diagnosed with ALS, which is an extremely rampant form of motor neuron disease. And this is the chronicle, this little book that she wrote um, towards the end of her life. It was a chronicle of her last days and what she was feeling about the illness and her reflections on life. And I just want to read a couple of, of little passages to you because I think 
A, they're moving, but I think they show us something that we often miss when we're not sick, when we're not ill, when we're not faced with a terminal diagnosis. She says this, I'm going to die of ALS if nothing unpredictable happens. And there are two roads that I can take. One is to lie down, be bitter, and to wait for the end. The other is to make something worthwhile of the misfortune, to see it in a positive light, however banal that might sound. My road is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future for me. There is only a bright present. Children live like this only for the present. Nothing coming afterwards. Therefore, I laugh like a child, uncontrollably. The whole of my adult life I have thought it will be all right in the end. I have to do this first and keep on going and it will be all right. But this way of thinking for me is no longer possible. The strange thing is that nowadays when I am terminally ill, I feel moments of great joy. Moments of joy such as I have hardly ever felt before. Happiness has certainly never been a constant for me, but now it is becoming one. That is why I laugh. And if it has anything to do with this bulba paralysis, then it's a blessing that comes with my illness. And just one other passage, and then I want to obviously expand on some of this. And this is a little encounter with uh, her son, her young son. Gustav comes and stands by my bed. Do you write all the time, mummy? It takes a long time now, I reply. I only write with two fingers. Mummy, I'm a miniature human being. <laughs> what? You're big and I'm little. No, Gustav, you're big. You have your whole life in front of you, the future. Now it's me who's getting smaller. Mummy, every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. Where have you heard that? Nowhere. I just made it up. <laughs> and he carries on. You have hundreds of thousands of lives left, mummy. Every second is a life, I echo. We spoke this afternoon, didn't we, a little bit in one of the questions about rebirth. <laughs> Every second is a life. Yeah. Echoing what's going on in that quotation. This is something we are in the process of forgetting. If sati has at its root, as you know, because we've explored it and mentioned it and it keeps being repeated, that it's present moment recollection, then actually the reason why we so much need sati in the center of our lives is because we live in constant forgetfulness. We live in constant forgetfulness of the gift that we have, 
And this doesn't entail any kind of theistic beliefs or anything of that, but simply the gift of life that we have at this moment. Yeah? Doesn't matter what's going to happen in the future, what has happened in the past. Not that we can erase those things or want to erase them. But we live in the forgetfulness of this moment of being. There's a word that occurs a number of times in the Pali Canon, this great edifice of Buddhist teachings, um, and often gets forgotten, forgotten, certainly in the Theravada tradition, which really took over these early teachings. It hardly ever gets mentioned, if at all. And it's a word in Pali which is abhuta, and it means to be in wonder, to be in awe. And the Buddha sometimes stressed this. And stressed that sati and this road of present moment awareness, present moment recollection, was the path to bringing ourselves back from this state of forgetfulness into this moment of being. We often squander our life. I think I mentioned to you the other night, Rilke said, our life is always elsewhere. It's as if it's somehow out there waiting for us to discover it, waiting for us to inhabit it. The Buddha is saying that life is here right now. Right now. And isn't it a paradox in this practice, in this path? Isn't it seemed a paradox? Because we could ask ourselves, you know, we speak about path for a start off. We speak of a path. It says, you know, the path of the Dharma. Yeah. Yeah, where does this path lead? Nowhere. It doesn't lead to anywhere. It leads right back to where you are. Yeah. It leads right back to sitting on this cushion at this moment. And a quotation that some of many of you will know which is, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. That's Eliot, T.S. Eliot. We forget this, don't we? We live in that forgetfulness of where we are right now, in this moment. We forget it because we get so wrapped up in our concerns, in our projects. This is why when you come on retreat, doesn't it sometimes feel difficult, but also when one begins to relax a bit more into it, this sense of relief when you put down your projects. And all you're asked to do is sit and walk and sit and walk and eat. <laughs> Don't forget that. <laughs> this is all we're asked. And so when we live in our world of concerns and projects, we're somehow in a process of forgetfulness of where we are. Now, obviously, we have to plan. Let's not be unrealistic. We obviously have to plan. We obviously, you all had to plan to be here. Yeah, that required you know, rational 
intelligent thinking. We're really good at it, except when it comes to emotions, and except when it comes to happiness. Have you ever noticed how you can't plan your way to happiness? <laughs> you know, what are the steps you're going to take to plan your way to happiness? Yeah. So, again, when we come into this remembrance of being, when we come into this remembrance of being, we come to inhabit this moment fully. In the fullness of this moment, so much is going on, isn't it? And if this has struck you even during this week, with that emphasis that we've placed so much on curiosity and interest, that there is so much going on. Yeah? There's so much in this very, very moment as you sit here in sensations, in our perceptions, in what is going on, even in processing my words, listening, yeah? in being bored and being distracted and being this and being that and all of these movements and fluctuations and fluxions of mind, you know, these upheavals of thought which are going on at this moment. There is so much going on and yet we sit there and go, I'm bored. Yeah. Let's have some entertainment. This is the content of our forgetfulness. We forget sometimes the richness within which we dwell. And when we forget that richness, we forget to appreciate the beauty and the wonder of where we are. The Buddha is always bringing us back not just to wholesome ways of living and wholesome ways of being as an end in itself, but as a way of discovering what it means to live, to really live, to fulfill our human potential. In my early days when I first went to India, um, some of you in the group will know I first wound up in India at the age of 17, and um, studied with some Tibetan teachers. And I always remember one who was describing to me and showing me, actually, the wheel of life. Many of you will be familiar with this, this pictorial representation, particularly used in Tibetan Buddhism, divided into six segments, all representing states of rebirth, but also they represent states of mind as well. Um, And in fact, the way the Buddha speaks about these is much more about the psychology, the psychological states that they represent. And he went through all of these and he described them. And the six segments were there were three upper forms of place where you could dwell and three lower forms of places where you could dwell. And the upper forms, I won't go into detail, but the upper forms were the godlike realm. The God realm was the realm where beings had everything, everything they could possibly want, had extremely long lives, you know, so long that they just weren't concerned to do anything. They kind of rested on their laurels. They didn't do any particularly bad actions, 
but they didn't do any particularly good actions. They had what I call a merit bank balance <clears throat> that kept them in that position until their bank balance ran out. And then it said that they descended into lower realms of existence. What I love in the Tibetan, there's a really humorous bit in one of the Tibetan texts. It says, when these beings were about to fall out of the God realm and be reborn in one of the lower realms, they started to smell and nobody would talk to them. <laughs> it's a lovely metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> and then there was the realm of what's called the Asuras, it's actually, it's actually a contraction of a Sanskrit word, Asuriya, which means the sun didn't shine on them. <laughs> and they were the, well, I suppose a few years ago, we'd have called them the upwardly mobile. And they were trying to get to where the gods were. Um, and there was a tree that was planted in their realm but had all of its fruits in the god realm. Yeah, and they were fighting desperately to get to the godlike realm. And then there was a human realm. I'll come back to that in a second. Then the lower realms, there was a realm of endless desire represented by these little figures who are called Preta or Peta in Pali, um, which are actually beautifully pictorially illustrated as, as little figures with tiny pinhole mouths, little tiny thing necks, and huge bellies what they did was they tried to satiate their hunger and of course each little bit of food they got in caused them more distress. Yeah, it was the realm of endless desire that could never be satisfied. Then there was an animal realm, which is the only one you can probably recognize apart from the human one, which I just mentioned. There was an animal realm which was actually represented for ancient Indians and actually for Tibetan culture as well, a realm of blind instinct of simply procreation, eating, excretion. And it was also a realm of huge suffering. Now, you've only got to think about the endless millions of animals that are killed each day. You know, a lot to feed human beings and a lot just to feed other animals. The German philosopher Schopenhauer once said, he said, I look around the world and I see everything eating everything else. Yeah. Um, that is the animal realm. So it's a realm of a lot of pain and a lot of suffering, as well as this abandonment to these really basic instincts you know, for survival and that. And then there was a hell realm right at the bottom. And the hell realm um, has a figure in it called the Yama, the god of death. And he holds up a mirror. And the punishments in hell are prescribed not by somebody who judges you, but the way you judge yourself by what you see in the mirror. Now, there was a human realm as well, and the human realm was defined as the realm of the possibility of compassion and friendliness and understanding, you know, penetrating wisdom or understanding. And I thought I was really clever at the age of 17 going on 18, and I said, ooh, I know people like that. <laughs> you know, I know people who think they've got everything. I know some people who are desperately giving themselves hell, and others who are just kind of following blind instincts, and others who are pursuing desire. And I said, is that the way it is? Is that 
is that what it is? is? Is this a kind of character type reference? And the teacher I was working with looked at me in absolute disgust <laughs> and said, no, that's a picture of you on one day. And then came what I considered to be the teaching. He said, how often in a day are you human? How often do you really live your potential? How often do you live that potentiality for being compassionate and generous and kind and understanding? How often do we live that when we think of so much of that immersion on the treadmill of samsara, so much of that immersion in that, on that treadmill, of course, is to be abandoned to blind instincts, to be abandoned to endless desire that can never be satiated, never be, never be ultimately satisfied. And let's face it, we give ourselves hell, don't we? Yeah, we really do give ourselves hell. Who's the worst critic that you have? You. Yeah. Now, I think almost other critics fall into insignificance in comparison with the, you know, that inner critic that we have for ourselves. We can strive and sometimes we can rest in a sort of egotistical you know, arrogance at times. So how often are you human? That's one of the, uh, the big questions that comes out of this. So coming into the moment, perhaps, I would suggest, some coming into that moment, perhaps sometimes we discover something about our potential for real humanity. Yeah, for real humanity in that moment. We discover, because we begin to look at our minds more closely, we discover that it's a mix, isn't it? It's a flux often of very unwholesome qualities which represent many of those other states in that six realms. But we do discover, and this is the point of what I'm trying today to say, we do discover modes of appreciation. We do discover joy. We discover sometimes generosity and kindness. Not that it has to be even extended to others, but even to begin to extend it to ourselves as we are doing in the meta practice, yeah. and then extending it to others from that base of trying to incline that mind in training and development and cultivation in it, we are trying to bring it from its almost nascent quality into real actuality, to bring it fully into bloom in this life. This is what we are attempting to do. But when we're in the process of forgetting, when we're caught in the thrall of desire, when we're caught up in it, we don't see that, do we? We only see the object of desire. That's why the hindrances which Chris spoke about are actually not hindrances at all. They're veils which we throw over reality. This is the actual word that's translated as hindrance, actually nivarana, actually means a veil. Yeah. Between us and reality is a veil which we have cast over the object. 
And so I don't see it as it is. I don't see it as impermanent and not possessing intrinsic qualities. I don't see it as actually potentially something uh, that cannot assuage my unhappiness. It cannot assuage my unhappiness in this life. All I see is the veil of desire, the veil of aversion, the veil of doubt, the veil of restlessness. This is what we do. And in those moments of forgetting, we lose that fundamental connectedness to being. The author Virginia Woolf, in her diaries, which were later, some parts of them, extracts, were published after her death. And they were published under a title which actually became a little motto for her, which was Moments of Being. Now, you might think these were profound, almost using the word that was asked the question about this afternoon, spiritual moments. They weren't. They were things, actually, that we, in a sense, try to remind you of even in the instructions, and hopefully you remind your your clients, if you're working with MBSR and MBCT, of those little things, the minutiae of experience, which so easily gets lost. For her, a moment of being was the feeling of cool water on skin on a hot day, the wind in your hair, the feel, the touch of softness of clothing. These were moments of connectedness. I dare I say it, aliveness, actually feeling alive, by really feeling that we are here, we can surprise ourselves just how alive we feel with some of the simplest things. And yet, often our minds go towards complexity, thinking that complexity is somehow going to solve our problems, to solve these problems that we have. And we forget that relationship with being. We forget that relationship and that connectedness. We forget the appreciation. Uh, Rilke, in one of his elegies, in the Duino elegies, in the first of the Duino elegies, said this, Yes, the springs needed you. Many a star was simply waiting for your eyes only. A wave swelled towards you out of the past, or as you walked by the open window, a violin inside surrendered itself to you. All this was your charge. But were you strong enough? Weren't you always distracted by expectation? Weren't you always distracted by expectation? Looking for life to be elsewhere. Looking for meaning to be in something often external to ourselves. And so, actually, when we begin to look at this, this deep engagement with life is what the Buddha is talking about. If I had a lot more time, and you can probably gather, I can speak endlessly about this stuff. <laughs> as Christina reminded me the other night, as I went in and said, I came in at 55 minutes. And she said, no, you didn't. It was an hour and 10. 
oops. <laughs> but if I had much longer, I could give you a much bigger picture of... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will try and finish. <laughs> But seriously, if I had much more time, I could bring you into this full picture of what the Buddha is trying to say to us, this deep engagement with life, this deep engagement with life in every form. And that deep engagement with life requires, actually, energy from you. Engagement. Engagement requires energy, doesn't it? The word that's used, again, if you don't mind these words, the words that's used in Pali is the word virya. Virya, energy. It's linked, actually, to the English words vigor and virile, which actually has changed its meaning in the course of the centuries. But in Indo-European languages, um, there is this kind of whole train of... um, of connections between these ancient words and words that even now we still use. And also in Sanskrit and Pali, it has the connotation of this vigor, this energy that we bring to life of heroism as well, courage. It takes real courage, doesn't it? I mean, the courage, I think, that's in that hope was manifest to you in that quotation that I read of of, uh, the Swedish television presenter. The courage to really engage with what is happening, rather than just trying to push it away in aversion. To really engage with what is actually happening to you. So it takes energy because life is difficult. It's also beautiful as well. The Buddha emphasizes both. And when we look at the Brahma-viharas, the Brahma-viharas are balanced between the pain of the world and the joy of it. Metta becomes the foundation for being able to contact through karuna, through what we usually translate as compassion, I won't get into problems with translation there, but what we usually translate as compassion as an engagement with the world's pain, with the pain that you experience and the pain that you see in the world, of which, of course, there is so much, isn't there? There is so much that we see out there in the world. We see so much suffering, both in our own countries and in many, many other countries, from the sort of conflicts we see in the world to the Ebola uh, crisis in West Africa. These are the pains of the world, and this demands something from us. That's our ethics. Buddhist ethics, by the way, demand a lot from people. They demand engagement. You know, even if I can't do something to be engaged even you know, in thinking about that problem. Yeah, it's not an easy thing. Yet on the other hand, we have this celebration that's there within mudita of appreciative, deep, gentle, appreciative joy. And we can only find that 
if we become connected with this moment. Yeah? Where are we going to get that appreciative joy from? Now, in traditional terms, the appreciative joy is just kind of appreciation at the good fortune of others. I think this is a very, very watered-down version of what the Buddha is saying. This is a very watered-down version. Of course, it includes that. It includes the appreciation of the good fortune that others may have, even when you yourself are not experiencing it, even when it's not in your life. But somehow, even that appreciation of others' joy can uplift you, can't it? You can be uplifted by that. But in a much, much wider sense, it's also the appreciation of simply being here at this moment, to simply be in this world. And this is not easy because we live in this world which is evanescent. It's in flux. Yes, it's been mentioned again and again and again, hasn't it? You know, I think all three of us, you know, sitting in front of you in this way, have mentioned this, this, this flux that we live and yet that we often deny. And yet, and also, how that flux, that impermanence of existence, almost threatens to unmine, undermine the meanings that we discover in life because things are transient. That's led philosophers and religions to look for, if you like, life elsewhere. You know, to place it on a plane that wasn't subservient to the ravages of time. Yeah. It's so much so that the German philosopher Nietzsche once said, the whole history of Western philosophy has been the revenge against time. Because everywhere when they talk about being, they don't talk about being in the way that I am talking about it, and the Buddha speaks about it. They're talking about being as being static. Things remain the same. They don't change. But we, we inhabit a world of flux. We inhabit a world of change. And that change, if we don't really engage with it and push it away in denial, can also be a loss. It can be losing that opportunity of appreciation and deep appreciation of the transient, of the passing. Many of you will know that, of course, one of the highest um, epitome, actually, of aesthetics in Japanese culture is cherry blossom. Why? Because it's transient. Yeah. It doesn't last. Yeah. And yet we look for that which is permanent, as being of real value. Again, quoting Rilke, Rilke says that we live, we inhabit this world forever taking leave. Forever taking leave of things. He said, be ahead of all of our partings. It's very difficult. This is what living in permanence means. It means living and not denying, not shoring ourselves up into some 
semi-secure environment that we've created by putting ourselves in a cage, a cage of habit. Again, not waving but drowning. That cage of habit. We pace our cage and long for the freedom we glimpse through the bars occasionally. Forgetting, of course, that the cage that we pace has been self-created. It's been created by this endless circularity, this round of samsaric existence, of the endless habits which feel secure even when they're painful sometimes, don't they? It's a paradox, isn't it? Sometimes we inhabit the pain and refuse to let it go. It's very interesting. One of the traditional Buddhist attitudes towards sangsara is one must develop, in some sense, a disenchantment with sangsara, with the kind of things it has to offer, and even with the pains you experience. It's almost as if we cling to the pain because I know this pain. That's why we often refuse to relinquish it, isn't it? We hold on to it. That's the grasping. It sounds, again, it does sound paradoxical, doesn't it? We grasp after. We try to make security. And in a way, and a number of thinkers have often pointed this out, that we end up dead before we're dead. We've closed life down. We've closed down our engagement with that flux, with beauty, with the minutiae of our experience, which is all offering us the meanings that we often miss in this movement back to the security, and I say seeming security, of the cage that we live in. We make little forays out occasionally and retreat back. And little forays out and retreat back. Yeah. So when we start looking at the Buddha's teaching in real depth, and of course, in a way, I'm giving you an overview this evening, not taking any particular teaching and really looking at it in, in, you know, really extrapolating it, but to give you more of an impression of the trajectory of what the Buddha is doing here. When we start to examine these teachings in detail, we begin to look at the depths, actually, of a word he does use of our, of our entrapment. Yeah. Of our entrapment. There's another word he uses, which is a word in Pali, which is sangyojana. A yojana is, is, a, is, a, is something you basically tie a horse with or a piece of cattle. It's a fetter. Actually, if you want to stop an animal from moving and running away, you fetter it. Except these fetters are created by ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, so there's lots of imagery, lots of similes and metaphors which are used by the Buddha to put us into that, you know, to give us a glimpse of that state of entrapment that we have. But on the other hand, we can get immersed in that and we can sit there with gloomy faces going, oh God, isn't this difficult? But on the other hand, he's saying there is this freedom 
There is this waking up. This waking up to that entrapment and in waking up to the details of that entrapment, we already have started to release ourselves. We've already started to unbind ourselves from that. And finally, he talks about this release from it. He gets this big name. I gave it to you the other night. Nirvana. Yeah. Nirvana. Yet Nirvana is really about being unbound. This is what it's about. And actually, at this moment, if you did it, you could be unbound. You might fall back again into your entrapment. And there's a tendency to think, almost in a kind of Big Bang theory, you know, if I keep on doing this, walking this path, treading this, working at the coalface, as often Christina puts it, you know, working at the coalface of my experience, eventually I'm going to get it to nirvana. Sounds like Buddhist heaven, doesn't it? Yeah. Which is not coming back. Where are we going? Nowhere. Where is nirvana? Here. It's right now. And you experience it. I, you know, I want to kind of put this back into real life experience, not see it as something which is out there just actually... sometimes for many people it's not even seen as a possibility. Yet, the moment, even if it's fairly minor, the moment you release yourself, and many of you might have had this experience already, you release yourself from some compulsion or some habit, how does it feel? How does that feel? When you release yourself in some moment from compulsion and habit. It has a taste, doesn't it? And that taste is freedom. That is nirvana. Nirvana becomes a skill. Yeah? It doesn't become a place. It becomes the skill of being able to unbind myself from these constant habit patterns that keep me bound to the treadmill and circularity of samsara with its feeling tone of dukkha. Being bound has only one feeling tone. Dukkha. And I'm sure you must all appreciate that in whatever way is within your experience of that. And so when we start to talk about freedom, it's not the end of an arduous trudge towards nirvana. It's, in a sense, the skill, if you become skillful enough, it becomes now. And how does that arise? It arises, connecting with something that Christina said this morning, it arises by re-perceiving. In a sense, sati as this attentive mindfulness, recollection, in a way begins to help us see, taste, smell, contact anew. The familiar. 
I don't know how it sounds to you. And when I first started to really explore this, this was tremendously exciting to me. It took life from being slightly monochrome into full of color. Because every moment and every moment of contact was a moment of meaning. A moment of being able to unbind myself if I see it clearly enough. It's not easy, but it's it's something we can do when we become skillful enough to, to unbind ourselves from these stultifying habit patterns that we inhabit that make us, in a sense, deadened to the world. It's no accident. I mean, there's been, there's been a figure mentioned a number of times by... I, don't, I personally haven't mentioned it, but I know Chris has, and I think Christina even mentioned it at one point. It's this figure called Mara. Mara has a literal meaning, the bringer of death. Because Mara represents all of those psychological states which bring about being entrapped. So Mara represents death. But not death as some kind of finality, but death within life. Doesn't that sound terrifying? Yeah? (laughs) Death within life. Yet, it doesn't have to be that way. This is what the Buddha keeps on telling us. It doesn't have to be that way. We can wake up. We can wake up to new ways of seeing, to new ways of perceiving. But it starts with a re-appreciation, often of the minutiae of our experience. Yeah? of actually joyfully connecting through that appreciative understanding of where we are. So linked in with sati, I would suggest, is this deep, deep sense of connectedness that evokes a joyfulness of re-experiencing. Not moving into some metaphysical place or realm to have a mystical experience if you want to know where the extraordinary exists it's in the ordinary in the very ordinary I mean actually that's what it is isn't it if you hyphenate it it's the extraordinary that's where the you know that's where the beauty of our experience lies in this very, very moment. Again, to quote Rilke, he says, all things want to fly, only we are weighed down by desire. We are caught in ourselves and enthralled by our own heaviness. All things want to fly. And yet we are enthralled by our own heaviness. And that heaviness of desire. Desire, craving, same word in Pali. Tanha. Yet, 
it's perfectly understandable why we move to that, because we think that's the solution to our problems. Yeah? Going back to the ennobling truth. Dukkha is sustained and exacerbated and created by an attempt to solve the problem of Dukkha. Now, that doesn't make people bad people. It just makes them unskillful. That's all. We're not talking about good and bad. What we're talking about is we're all trying to find our way through life with its difficulty in the best possible way, except we start looking for what we want in the wrong places rather than in this place right now on this cushion where you sit at this moment. Not in some other place at some other time. It's here now. And this is brought about in a number of traditions. When the Buddha speaks about liberation, he's speaking about it in the ancient texts, liberation right now. Being awake right now. Other traditions do this, talking about this all the way through. In the Zen tradition, as many of you know, they use humor to try and point things out um, in stories and haiku and parables and all sorts of ways of trying to point out that this awakening is not at some distance from us. You know, some unattainable distance, actually, most people think. You know, but is actually right present for you now. You know, so when we start talking about um, waking up to the moment, you go, oh yeah, waking up to the moment, well, I'm just going to wake up to the moment. Well, because liberation is here in this moment, with all of its beauty, with all of those simple, simple but meaningful experiences you're having, now do we really take the time and I would suggest this just now do we really take the time in those instructions that are given and have been given quite a number of times here and you as I say probably give to people you're running courses with do you really take time to feel the air on your skin yeah yesterday it was very cold But did you really take the time to feel that and to feel the aliveness of being able to feel that? Yeah? Yet what we do is you notice the mind went into a habit pattern. Don't like this. Don't like this. Want to get away from this. Yeah. And of course it is unpleasant. That's the taste of it. It's unpleasant. Yeah. Human beings seek warmth. It's a survival instinct that we have. Yet can we take that momentary appreciation of the aliveness that one feels with the contact of that cold air on your skin as you walk outside or even sit in the hall here when it's as cold as it was yesterday? Nobody says it has to be pleasant. But there is something there in terms of of the meaning for our existence, for our day-to-day being in this world. 
for me, that's what's encapsulated in that quotation that I read you. You That this moment is your life. And this moment is your life. Yet we squander it for lives to come. Which actually might never come. And that's not morbid. That's just the way it is. We don't know how long this life lasts. What we do know is this moment. Inhabiting this moment with this breath. With these contacts. That is what is so important. And this is emphasized again and again and again in different ways, in very ancient language. But it's emphasized again and again by the Buddha and by the traditions that follow it, like the Zen tradition. I'm going to kind of just draw this to a close now. There's a lovely story in the Zen tradition of a Zen master who's dying. And his disciples gather round him and they discuss among themselves what they can give him in his you know, last few hours that, might, that he might appreciate at all. And they decide that he liked the particular cake. And so they send out one of the disciples to go and get this particular cake to bring back to the master. And uh, they, the disciple comes back with the cake gives it to the chief disciple, who then gives it to the master, and the master picks up the cake, and he takes a few mouthfuls, and then dies. And just before he dies, he said something. And of course, the, the disciples, the pupils, are really anxious to know what he said, because this is the last dispensation of the teacher. And they asked the chief disciple, who caught those last words, and they said to him, and what did the master say? And he said, the master said, beautiful cake. That's being in the moment. <laughs> beautiful cake. That really is appreciating everything, isn't it? Up to that last moment. Yeah. Yet, in our forgetfulness of being, in our absent-mindedness almost. I think it's a lovely word, isn't it? Absent-mindedness. <laughs> yeah. We lack that appreciation. We lack that connectedness. We inhabit a world often, and I can only let you judge individually for yourselves whether this is true, we often live in a world that is poverty-stricken of meaning. Yeah we become submerged by the demands of our work, our families, which are all important, and try to assuage often the pain that comes from those lives, as well as the joys, but particularly the pains. We try to assuage it through the materiality which is there in the Western world, yet we enter onto that treadmill that I keep on speaking about. And for much of our lives, we can feel that we're not. We're not waving. We are drowning in that absent-mindedness. Just to finish on a quotation 
again, one of Rilke's poems, or an extract of one of his poems, which is from the Sonnets to Orpheus, which some of you may know. In this immeasurable darkness, be the magic at the crossroads of your senses. Be the meaning of their mysterious encounter. And if the earthly no longer knows your name, whisper to the silent earth, I'm flowing. To the rushing water, say, I'm here. Thank you. Thank you for your attention, and uh, I think uh, we will be back in at quarter two. I believe we have a bell ringer tonight, do we, for, to bring us back? I say hopefully. <laughs> if we don't have a bell ringer, can I encourage you to come back at quarter two, <laughs> to quarter to nine? Okay, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.